on May 24th, 1921, marked the beginning of what is still today the longest length and longest continual running marathon in all the world. The Comrade Marathon is a 56-mile ultra-marathon held in South Africa every year. Over 20,000 runners gather annually to take on these 56 miles in under 12 hours. The fastest time to date is 5 hours and 24 minutes. Just think for a moment as you think about running 56 miles in 12 hours, the kind of pain and sufferings that these runners endure as they run this race. Just think about the pain physically and emotionally and spiritually. I would imagine that they would face these men and women run at a rate of over four miles per hour continually. If you sort of divide 12, though some do it in faster time. I wonder what it would feel like when you get halfway through the run, when you reach the halfway point, knowing that you have completed at least half of this run, and now all that you have done up to this point, you know that you can do moving forward. If they had trained well for this race, they would have known the pain, right? This would not be their first time running 56 miles. No one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, today I think I'm going to go run 56 miles. No, they would have known the kind of pain uh, that would have come at mile number 15 and mile number 25 and 35 and 45 and 55. They They would have felt already the pain of their body about halfway through that race beginning to eat away at itself as the body began to consume more than it was producing. It began to eat literally. They would have known what it felt like for their lungs to begin to fill with a greater amount of oxygen than carbon dioxide. They would have known how it would have felt for their blood to become so thin that they would begin to become lightheaded if they did not pace themselves. The question for them would would they keep going once they reach that halfway mark? Would they endure the pain of the run? Why? What would keep someone going when they are running? What, what is it that they would do? Because they knew that keeping on, though painful, means that they will reach the end. They would not give up, though it is painful. They would not quit because they know that if they were to quit halfway through the race, that 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 pain that they had endured up until that point would be in vain. It would be meaningless. For them to finish the race, they must begin with the clear understanding that there's going to come no cost in order to finish. I wonder, as you think about these runners running uh, 56 miles, if you think about what that took in preparation to get to that day and then to make it through to mile marker 55 and to know that only thing that stands in your place is one mile. For a runner, one mile... Look, if you're running 56 miles, one mile is like nothing, right? For them, they do that in their sleep. 
A mile is nothing. Now, for most of us today, a mile is, you know, we'd be crying about 500 feet into it, right? But for them, they would have known the sweet joy, right? Because for them, it wasn't about getting there in a certain amount of time, right? They had to get there in 12 hours. For them, it wasn't about winning, being the fastest person. For them, it was about just finishing the race. Right, you see, if they were to finish the race, they would be among a, a very small minority in this world today, right? How many folks can run 56 miles in a single day, right? I know probably some of y'all haven't run, uh, haven't run 56 miles in your entire life if you added up all of the times you've walked and moved and all those things, right? Oh, but what the sweet victory they would taste when they cross that finish line. Right? Because it's sweet. We've got to remember the difficulty of the race wouldn't matter to them in that moment, would it? All of the pain that they had felt, all the, the suffering, all, all those cramps that they would have had throughout that race, all of those tearful times when they felt like they were about to die. No, that's all gone. It fleets away. For, for them, the feeling at the finish is all the more sweeter than the pain they endured. And friends, this morning we are going to think about a group of people who are running a race. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are also running, if you will, a metaphorical race, a race filled with pain and with suffering. From the very beginning of this letter, Peter has identified his audience, those that he originally wrote to in the first century, as Christians who are suffering for the sake of Christianity. In fact, in, a, in just a moment here next week, we're going to see in verse 16 of chapter 4, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Peter is writing to a group of people who are enduring various trials. And so not only are they suffering for the sake of Christianity, but they are being grieved, he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 6, by various trials. Various pains and sufferings have been brought to them. And the final exhortation he gives to them comes to us in chapter 5 and verse 12 where he says this, these kind of final words, stand firm. Stand firm. Keep going, he says. Like runners at that final mile marker when they could just easily quit and throw in the towel, he says, keep going. Don't give up. The end is near. That's the encouragement that he gives to us this morning. That as we live this life, we need to be reminded of a truth. And that truth is going to be the, the, the kind of overarching truth that's going to help inform all of the exhortations you're going to hear this morning. And that truth is, the end is near. The end of all things is near. So don't quit. Don't give up. The end is near. Let's look this morning at 1 Peter chapter 4. I invite you to turn there with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, just grab that one in front of you and turn to page 1016. 
Uh, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and those smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And I want you to look at verse number 7, that little 7 there at the bottom of page 1016. Hear the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end is near, Peter says. The end has come. He begins this, this exhortation of commands by, by framing it within the, 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 the grand scheme of God's eternal purposes in that one day, as we have been promised in the, in the Scriptures, that, that Jesus Christ will return. And so he tells them, listen, Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to be coming at any moment. Now, as we sit here in 2017, listening to words that were written in the 60s AD, some 2,000 years have passed, you begin to question and wonder, like Peter, like, dude, you must have missed it, man. Your calculations must have been off, you know. Uh, you were off by a few thousand years, Peter. Or was he? See, I get often asked the question, uh, are we living in the end times? Uh, it's a regular, maybe weekly question, maybe monthly at least. I get, are we living, right? What they are doing is they're saying like, look at the world around you. Look at all this stuff going on, right? You look back, right? One of the things that's going to happen in a couple weeks at the end of 2017 is what? You know, the news stations are going to put on the, the reel. They're going to have this nice sentimental music playing in the background. And they're going to go over all the events that took place in 2017. And you're going to be like, wow, the end is near. Wow, uh, it sure does feel like we're living in the end times. And so when people ask me that question, I understand what they're asking. And so my response to them is often yes. And it always will be yes. Because we have been living in the end times since Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So that's what the New Testament teaches us. That's what Peter is, is understanding here. Is that the end times has begun, has been inaugurated in the coming of the King and in His death, burial, and resurrection. And so, yes, we are living in the end times. We live in light of the Lord's immediate return. Well, this is what Jesus taught His disciples, is it not? In Matthew 8, or Mark 13, uh, let's get my books right. In Mark 13, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, look, I am I'm coming again, and, and it will be quick. It will be unexpected. It will come at any moment. Uh, Paul taught similarly in Romans 13. As we heard earlier, the, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. What, what day? The, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's return. 
The Lord Jesus' brother taught as well in James. He wrote, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It, it is near. These men lived with an expediency and expectancy of the Lord's return. And as a result, they were not taken to laziness, nor to anxiety in the Christian life. They, they weren't running around like Chicken Little. We've, we've seen a lot of chicken little Christians this year, and I've, I've pointed them out as best as I can. You know, the, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But Christians don't act that way. Christians aren't concerned about who the President of the United States is, or who the next Congress is, or, or even who the, the next Mayor of Baltimore is. We're, we're not concerned. We are concerned, but we're not, we're not anxious about that. We're, we're not driven to kind of laziness over that. And we understand that because the end is near, we are all the more getting ready for the Lord's return. We too live with a sort of palpable expectancy of the Lord's return. We, we feel it in our bones. We, we feel it in our pulse like the Lord is going to descend at any moment. So our lives are lived in light of that truth. In light of the truth that at any moment the, the trumpet would sound. Calvin, thinking about this and writing, he says this, It is then no wonder that the cares of this world overwhelm us and make us drowsy. If the view of present things daze our eyes. For we promise, almost all of us, an eternity to ourselves in this world. What he's saying is that we think we're going to live forever in this world, and so we, we live accordingly to that, right? If you're going to live forever, you live according to the fact you're going to live forever in this world. You, you kind of like, that's no big deal. I, I can do whatever I want today. I can but he goes on to say this. We live at least the end never comes to our mind. Death is never in our mind. We're, we're not worried about the end. But were the trumpet of Christ to sound, to our ears. It would powerfully rouse us and not suffer us to lie apathetic. Calvin is commenting on a tendency of too many of us, right? To live in such a way that, you know, yeah, he might come back. We're just not sure when. So I'm going to kind of do my thing. Um, and then if he shows up, great. No, as Christians, we live in light of the Lord's return. And so Peter's point is this, since the end of all things has drawn near, Christians should live according to God's will. Probably the second most often question I get asked is, what is the will of God for my life? Well, friend, if you've ever asked that question, if you're maybe wondering that this morning, like, what is God's will for my life? Rest assured, you're about to hear it. It's right here in these words. If you want to know what you need to be doing in your life, what's going to be outlined in these four marks. Peter outlines for us really four marks that should shape our lives as Christians as we await the Lord's return. What should we be doing? What kind of activities should we be about as we wait for Jesus to come back? Four marks. Mark number one, self-controlled and sober-minded. Mark number two, sincere love. Mark number three, showing hospitality. And mark number four, serving one another. 
We're going to consider this morning these sort of four marks or four characteristics of Christians. If we were to kind of peel back your life, what what are you doing? What are we doing together as God's people? What are we about? We should see these four things, these four characteristics. And so first, mark number one, self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, 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 very quickly, uh, these ideas, uh, I put them together because Peter is really saying the same thing in just two different ways. All right? Uh, Peter's trying to capture the, the same idea with two words, a, a kind of a doublet, if you will, put together. And so we'll consider them apart, but, but really they're the same idea. First, he says self-control. Look what he says there in verse 7. Uh, Therefore, in light of the fact that the end is near, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Considering their current state of suffering and the approaching uh, of the Lord's return, uh, they are to be under control. They're not to be taken up with fanciful ideas or mystical teachings, but are to be under control. Uh, Their lives are to be orderly. But remember what we considered a couple of weeks ago, what their lives were once marked by. Look with me back up here to verse 3 of chapter 4, just, just a few verses up. Remember, for the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, and he's describing them here. He's not just saying, like, you know, those people out there. He's saying, no, you all in here. This is what you used to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's like, this is what your life was once characterized by. Reckless living, but not now. Uh, They they were once marked by this sort of rash and and reckless living, but now your life is under control. Once drunkenness, but now sobriety. With their hearts and heads screwed on tight, they were to live according to God's will. Literally, Peter's saying here is don't lose your head. Remain under control. Friend, I just wonder this morning, does self-control characterize your life? What does self-control look like? Let me just ask you a series of questions and just see where you sit here. When bad news comes, does it cause your soul to crash? Does unexpected news or changes to your schedule cause you to run off course? Does the constant changing world around you cause you to grow anxious and nervous? Perhaps does your spending habits more resemble a reckless teenager than someone who is mature and sound? Brothers and sisters, these are just sort of a few examples of ways that that often in our lives we can live in in such a way that is not self-control, but is rather reckless. Y'all, most of you, are Americans. And our culture thrives on the immediacy. When we want something, we want it now. I got an email this morning from Amazon telling me about their uh, improvements 
to their prime membership. And, and as they were highlighting at the top of the list, you know, remember the day when you, you, when you ordered something, you had to wait like actually a week for it? Right? The standard today is you ain't even waiting a day for it. When you order, when you click, I want to buy that, you expect that guy to be there within hours of ordering it. And so in the email, that was at the top of the list. You, you still get two-day delivery, but boy, that's not that good anymore, for, especially for us in Baltimore, right? We want it now. So we grow restless. And with restlessness comes recklessness. When we don't get what we want now, when we don't patiently wait on the Lord, we become Reckless. We make foolish decisions and live foolish lives. But Peter continues to say, not only is your sort of life to be under control, your mind is to be under control. And he says to be sober-minded. Now, now some of you may immediately sort of jump to, okay, he's talking about here like, don't get drunk with wine. Don't get drunk with alcohol. And, and, and yes, the idea is is that of, of literal sobriety. But, but I think if you narrow to only that, you would miss the point. That's why the translators here say sober-minded. It is, they want you to understand that you are to have a sort of clear-headedness about your thinking. That connects, right? right? We understand that drunkenness leads to poor decision-making process, right? It inebriates the decision. It, 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 it inhibits that. So the illustration that Peter paints for us is very vivid and clear, isn't it? That, that in our souls, in our minds, in our thinking, we are to have a, a wisdom like the Lord, a clear-headedness about the world we live in. So Jesus told his disciples, right? I'm sending you out among, among wolves. Jesus told his disciples, look, you are sheep in the midst of wolves. Like, wolves eat sheep. And you are a sheep. And you're going to get eaten up. Just know that. Like, right? That's the wisdom of the Lord. Know who you are and where you live. You are a sheep. And there are wolves around you all day long ready to eat you up. And you need to have the mind of the Lord in that. You need to know that. So he says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sober-mindedness means that we are not easily frustrated, nor do we grow hopeless in the bombardment of sin and temptation and difficulty in this world. As Christians, we know that this world is broken, that this world is fallen. We are not surprised when others sin against us. Uh, we're not surprised when difficulty comes. And that is why Peter says this word in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you. I'm shocked when Christians come to me like surprised by evil. Like you live in an evil world and you're an evil person. Why are you so surprised by this? As Christians, we know that we are broken in need of a Savior. Notice here he says that, that the lack of self-control, the lack of sobriety in mind, notice what happens. It undermines our prayers. 
He says that be sober-minded, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. When your life is more characterized by recklessness and spiritual drunkenness, then you will not be characterized by prayer. You'll be too busy, you'll be too distracted by the cares of this world to give yourself to prayer. The number one excuse for not praying is time. It's not willingness or desire. I know everyone in this room has a desire to pray if they're a follower of Christ. You desire, you want to pray. The problem is the cares of this world have caused you and I to be distracted. And so for the sake of our prayers, may we give ourselves to these things. So Christians live distinct lives in these last days by living self-controlled and sober-mindedness. Uh, let's consider, we're going to go quickly through these next, mark number two, sincere love. Christians are marked in these last days, in the end times, if you will, by a sincere love. Look at verse 8, what he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Above all, Peter says, above all. He, he says, above all you are to love. And notice what he says about love earnestly or sincerely our love as christians is sincere and so what is sincere love i I think he just identifies for us here very so let's just look at a couple things here in verse verse number eight sincere love is central it's central to our lives individually and corporately notice he says above all above all with with sort of with with a priority on love Right, Christians place a premium on love. Why? Well, is it not our, our Savior's great commandment that He gave us? He gave us a great commission, but He also gave us a great commandment, right? That we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love one another. In fact, he says that, that love is so central to the life of God's people that this is how the world will know you are my disciples. That by our love for one another, people will be able to say, like, wow, they must be a follower of Jesus. We're reminded in the gospel that, that we love not be, or we love because God loved us. We don't have time to really develop this, but, but, but friends, do not take your cues for love um, from the Hallmark Channel or from any other uh, worldly thing. Uh, that uh, is not biblical love. It may be a faint picture of biblical love, uh, but biblical love has a, has a Savior on a cross dying for sinners. It's costly. And so, so God doesn't love us because we're lovable, because we loved Him. But as Peter told us earlier in chapter 1 and verse 3, that God loved us according to His great mercy. God's love is a gracious love. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to invite you to experience the same love. You may not understand what love is or how it works, but 
It begins by understanding that Christ Jesus died. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. As Christians, we are taken up by many cares in this world, many difficulties, many burdens. But as Christians, we put a priority on love. Love is central to our lives together. Not only is love central, we see here in verse 8 that sincere love is continual. He says, above all, keep loving one another. Love for one another is not momentary, nor is it temporary. It's not something you do on your good days and uh, not on your bad. Peter, Peter describes something as continual. He says, keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. Our love for one another must not grow cold. It must not grow weary. It must be vibrant and sincere. That's what Peter is exhorting us to. A love that continues. Look, I know we could come up with many excuses for not loving one another. Right? Probably at the top of the list is, you know, they hurt me. They did something to me. You know, you, you know, 10 years ago, they, they said something mean to me. And so therefore, I, I'm not going to love them anymore. And you might think, well, that's really petty. Do people really say that? Um, yes, people do say that. And people do think that. I know because I think that way. I'm often tempted to, to, to love people who love me, right? As Christians, we, we don't love because we're going to get love in return. Some reciprocal love. Like, I'll love you because I know you're going to love me back. No, friends, we understand that, that we are going to get hurt. Look, being a part of a community is just like being a part of a family, right? Families are messy and messed up, right? Now you can do all the kind of beautification you can to your family, but, but at the end of the day, you know it's messy. And so it is in a church, uh, right? Our love for one another doesn't you know, sort of grow warmer because people are being nice to us, Right? Our love is grounded in its continual nature because God's love does not ebb and flow. God's love for you doesn't grow warmer because you obeyed Him. God isn't like in heaven saying, man, I really love you today because you did something for me. No, God's love for you is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so our love for one another should reflect that same love. So our love is continual. Here Peter quotes Proverbs 10.12 when he writes, Since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. We're going to consider in a moment here, but, but one of the things we're going to see, brothers and sisters, is your love for others continual? Or is it contingent upon something that they are going to do for you? And so we need to cultivate a love that's continual, that keeps going and grows and flourishes. Not only that, we see here that love, that sincere love, is contextual. As you look at this passage, you'll see three times in this, in this section of Scripture, Paul, uh, Peter uses the word one another. Keep loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. Verse 10, serve one another. Who are these one another's? Who are these one another's that, that these Christians are going to be held accountable to on the day of judgment for their love 
and their hospitality and their service. What context is this sort of love and service and hospitality going to be worked out in? Are they to love every Christian in the world equally? Are they going to be held accountable for for all the love of of the Christians in, in Maryland or Catonsville? No, Peter has in mind here a particular community for which this love will be worked out. Just like in a covenantal marriage, we are exhorted and covenanted together to love our spouses. But we understand that that exhortation to love is not the same as our love for our neighbor next door, right? We, we may love them, but, but we understand that that love and the covenant of marriage is going to look differently than our love to our neighbor, even our own children. And just like that in the church, we are covenanted together in membership. Not to love every person in the world. Sure, we are to love all Christians. But we understand that in the local church, in this body of believers, this love is to be expressed. That we are held accountable, not so much for our love for all Christians, but for our love for these Christians in membership here at Catonsville Baptist Church. So if you are a member here, you are uh, going to be held accountable by the Lord for the love, for the hospitality, for the service you show to the members of this congregation. Later, Peter is going to exhort elders, pastors, and he's going to tell them that, listen, you are to shepherd the flock of God. What flock? All the Christians? No, a particular flock, the one that I have called you to, you are to shepherd, and you will be held accountable to the shepherding of those saints. Friend, it's only in the covenant of of marriage, that love can be expressed in a safe and meaningful way. And so it is in the safety of membership, where we are committed to one another in covenant, that we can sacrificially love expressed in dynamic and vibrant ways. Peter says that our love is not only contextual, but notice here he says that it covers sin. He says, since love covers a multitude of sin. What does it mean to cover sin? You might be thinking, well, this seems kind of contrary to the gospel. No, what he says is love forgives. Sincere love is forgiving love. I think what Peter has in mind here because of his quote is that we need to be quick to forgive and slow to condemn. That the kind of love that Christians should have is one of forgiving love. A willingness to to be heard. A a willingness to express grace and mercy. Let's continue on to Mark number 3. Verse number 9. This will be quick. Show hospitality. Peter continues in his instruction in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You may wonder, why does Peter put hospitality right here? All right, the great love command and the serve one another things. Like, and in the middle, he sandwiches hospitality. 
You know, like, why do the New Testament authors always talk about hospitality? Why are they always talking about these things? Because hospitality is one of the most visible expressions of love and service that we can do in a local church. Hospitality brings visible life and expression to our love and service. And so the question is, what is hospitality? Because I know this morning you're probably confused about that. Hospitality is this. It is opening yourself and your stuff for your joy and their enjoyment. Hospitality is opening yourself and your stuff for your joy and their enjoyment. When we often think about hostility, hospitality, we think about it in the sort of narrowest sense, right? Hospitality is, you know, inviting folks over for dinner. Uh, bring over people for for dinner, or, or we think about it maybe the, the ladies cooking us a meal after church, the, the hospitality you know, committee, right? We think about hospitality in connection with food, and that's not a wrong, that's not wrong, I, I think that's sort of a basic, I would, I would classify that as, as sort of minor league uh, hospitality. That's like the basic hospitality that you, is invite, you right? and you're thinking, wow, I thought that was like major league, I thought that was like the top of the list. No, no, no. See, when we have this sort of narrow view that hospitality is merely just opening you know, your home for a meal, that, that's a glimmer. We're getting there. But it's more than that. We understand literally the word hospitality means lover of strangers. Uh, we, we see that connection there that I mentioned earlier about loving people that can't love you back. Right? So when you open your home to a homeless person, you understand that homeless person can't invite you into their home. They ain't got one. Because often the way we do hospitality is, hey, you know, I'm going to have the Joneses over and then, then you know, they're going to feel obligated, you know, because I had them over, they're going to invite me over. That's sort of how we work. But see, Christian hospitality is deeper than that. It is an opening of yourself and your stuff. Look, we love to live in isolation. We, we we get freaked out like you know when when we actually have to like have a conversation with somebody sometimes you know we're just like you know I'm gonna do my thing I'm gonna come home and go to bed and and people leave me alone. But hospitality is about helping people to see the real you. Hospitality is about opening yourself up so that people can see that you are a broken person in need of a. A glorious Savior. Hospitality is more than you just, you know, fixing nice meals. It's about you inviting people into your life so that you can minister to them in intentional ways. So that you can love on them. And so that may look like you, you know, having people over for dinner. That may look like you going, you know, to a coffee shop and having it. That may look like you running some errands and inviting someone to go with you. Hospitality comes in many forms, but it is fundamentally about opening yourself and your stuff to others. It is entertaining strangers and friends alike at the, at the same level. That you would, you would fix a feast for a stranger the way you would fix a feast for a friend. But friends, isn't this the richest reflection of our Savior? Jesus was often hanging out with, with those on the margins 
those on the fringes of society, the ones that, that nobody wanted to have over for dinner. Right? Remember when he invited Matthew into his home? Or when, excuse me, Matthew invited Jesus into his home? Jesus is hanging out, fellowshipping uh, with folks that are notorious sinners. But, but this is what Jesus did. He was hospitable. Let's look at the final one, Mark 4, serving one another. Verses 10 and 11, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I just want to highlight very quickly a few things here. First, everyone has been given a gift from God to serve. So if you're there this morning thinking, man, I don't have no gifts, you're wrong. If you are a Christian this morning, you have been equipped with the gifts of service. You have been given gifts to serve. Now, Peter outlines really two main types of service here, and this follows with much of the New Testament. There's really two, two groups of serving, uh, there's two groups of gifts. First, the gifts of speaking, speaking gifts, and serving gifts. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Speaking gifts are those various gifts, including teaching, preaching, singing, encouraging, exhorting, correcting. Like there's some people that are just gifted at correcting, right? Right? I mean, they just are. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that they're gracious. There are some people that don't need to be correcting other people because they're, they're hard, they're cold, and they're mean. But there are some that are just sweet in their ability to say, Brother, you're in sin. Repent and believe. Jesus loves you. Turn and trust in him again. There, there are those who are gifted as we, we see. It's not me that can be gifted at singing to leading the congregation in that way. Gifts of encouragement like Barnabas, right? The, the encourager. Who's often encouraging Paul in his ministry, in his missionary journeys. Gifts of preaching and teaching. Look, I don't, I don't like preaching isn't something that you are born with. Preaching is a gift given by God. A gift that comes from Him alone, for which He deserves the glory alone. But not only are there speaking gifts, there are, are serving gifts. We, hear, we see here in verse 11, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God has given Serving, speaking gifts, excuse me, are, are often the more visible ones, right? The ones that get all of the attention, the one everybody sees. It's the serving gifts that often go unnoticed. You know, the, 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 the card of encouragement, going over and shopping for someone so that a shut-in can get food. Uh, ways in which we help one another with our talents and our time. We understand that serving is costly, but it's glorious when the body of Christ serves one another. I think of so many ways in this, our own congregation, I see that worked out. I see sisters serving one another, and I see brothers encouraging one another. When I think of those that serve not by their own strength, but by the strength that God has given them, I think of Virginia, who gets up at 3 o'clock in the morning so that she can, so she can serve us by playing eight hymns on, Sun, on the Lord's Day. Without complaint or, or, or without grumbling. 
I think of our brother Leroy here who, who look, he's not the quickest dude around, right? You know, he's not running no 56-mile marathon, uh, but, but who walks miles a day so that he can share the gospel at the hospital with those that need to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. We can amen those folks and we can praise them, and there are many others. But friends, I think this passage is about saying, look, look to those around you who are doing it and emulate their faith. Emulate those who are sacrificial in their giving. Imitate those that are sacrificial in their time and in their efforts and their talents. Give yourself to those. Imitate their faith. Follow them as they follow Christ. As Christians, we are to live distinct lives in these last days by serving one another. And since the end of all things is drawn near, we should live according to God's will. That's what we're after this morning, is living according to God's will. And this reality shapes our lives together as God's people. We're not doing this out of some obligation. We are doing this because our Lord and Savior is coming. And we are living in light of His return. And we are giving ourselves to self-control and sober-mindedness. We are giving ourselves to love by showing hospitality and serving one another. Friends, these are the marks of genuine Christians living in difficult and dark days. As we conclude, I, I just want to focus on just one little piece here. Time has expired, but I want you to see one thing. Verse 11, he says, In order that... In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's in order that. Peter says that these traits are produced with a particular purpose in mind. The purpose of these traits in our lives is to bring God glory through Jesus Christ. When we pursue these marks, God is glorified. God is glorified when you're self-controlled in your mind and self-controlled in your life. You aren't turning around scared and anxious about this world, but you are sober in prayer. God is glorified when you're sincere in love. Love for one another, a love that's expressed in a willingness to forgive one another again and again. God is glorified when you show hospitality. Though it is costly and difficult, it's done without complaint. And God is glorified when you use the gifts God has given you to serve, not yourself or your reputation, but to use them to serve others, both in speech and in action. Brothers and sisters, may God be glorified through these marks in our lives together. To God belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give praise and glory to you now in Christ. And we desperately act, ask that we would see these in our lives. Perhaps if we're lax or lazy, Lord, that we would give ourselves to pursue these in our lives for your glory. We rest in the finished work of Christ this morning. We know that, that we are not saved because we obey, but we are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone by faith alone. And we ask this for your glory and our good in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.